expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Yes, hello. And also joining us is Ross Feingold, a senior advisor for DC International Advisory. Ross, thanks for being here. Good evening. Today on the show, we'll be talking about an international trade deal. No, not with Taiwan, but that's sort of the point. Ty's trip to the U.S. and the fallout from last week's tragic killing of an eight-year-old girl. But rather than balancing things out by starting things off on a positive note, we're leading with a downer as well. MERS has been in the news all week. That is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. This week in South Korea, we saw the number of infections creep up, prompting massive quarantines and hundreds of school closures. Here in Taiwan, meanwhile, there are still no confirmed cases of the disease, but the Ministry of Health and Welfare has acknowledged that preventing the disease's spread into the country could be difficult. So hospitals are getting ready. Uh, Gavin, tell us about uh, what's been going on in Taiwan this week to get ready. Yes, of course. Centers for Disease Control Deputy Director General Zhou Jirahua explained that checks are aimed at making sure frontline medical personnel are getting all the necessary information from the possible patients and they're being asked to check on all travel itineraries of anyone who's suspected of having MERS before treating them and local governments are now working with hospitals at a local level to more closely improve preparedness and enhance information sharing. There is great concern about this, of course, because everybody remembers the SARS outbreak from yeah. several years ago, which, of course, they really weren't prepared for. Right. Uh, and so uh, have, have they taken anything from that experience to uh, uh, up their preparedness this time around? They're, in fact, all this week, local hospitals and local emergency service personnel have been doing drills, MERS drills. They've been putting all the protective gear on and not necessarily running around, but practicing moving people that possibly could have the illness. Obviously, there's no one has the illness in Taiwan, but people are... It's like a drill, so people are acting like they have MERS and the medical personnel are practising putting on the suits and moving people around from hospital, hospital wards, from home to hospital and in emergency transportation vehicles. And, of course, all this focus on hospitals uh, has been because it, gets, it seemed to be spreading through the hospital system in South Korea. It hasn't gone much beyond that, and so uh, the, the thinking is is that... Uh, really, the the point of infection that you got to focus on is the hospitals itself. Uh, do, do do we have a sense in general if uh, Taiwan's health system is prepared to deal with this kind of a pandemic? Well, uh, one of the things we're fortunate here, in, at least in Taipei City, is that we we do have a mayor with a medical background and. Uh, he's been outspoken this week in, in talking about preparedness. Uh, he seems to have a positive impression of the overall readiness, uh, at least in Taipei City. One one thing we we could look to is uh, Mariko's leadership when there was the Transasia air disaster downtown. And uh, he, he, he didn't go to the scene, but he helped immediately, but he helped direct the, the relevant personnel. Uh, and I think he showed good leadership, especially with regards to how, how to care for the injured uh, so let's hope it doesn't happen uh, here in Taiwan, but uh, we are fortunate to have a, a medical professional in a, a senior political office. 
And uh, just to give some people a, a little bit of background on why people are so concerned about MERS, uh, the fatality rate for MERS is actually higher than SARS. Uh, however, it should be noted that the it's still not very well understood. This is a relatively newly discovered disease. It was first reported in 2012. It's not very well understood how uh, rapidly it transfers between person to person. And actually, a lot of health officials are saying that uh, the fact that it has spread so rapidly in South Korea is uh, somewhat surprising. Nobody really expected it to move that quickly. So uh, still not quite certain uh, what to expect going from here, but uh, definitely reassuring that people are taking measures to prepare. So we've mostly been uh, talking about hospital workers, but uh, they're not the only ones that should be taking measures to prepare for this, right? Well, that's right. There's an element of personal responsibility as well. And and one unfortunate aspect of the SARS situation in 2003 was that people who were ill, not not just in Taiwan, but around the region, people who were ill uh, were reluctant to go seek medical care. And that could be because they were scared of being around other people who were ill uh, in a hospital, or they were afraid of being ordered to be quarantined and did not want to miss work or school or uh, other events by being locked up while while they were being watched to see if they actually became ill with SARS. Uh, So the the personal responsibility element is very important, and hopefully this time people would have learned the lesson from SARS and that people who are not feeling well and do have some of the identified symptoms which are now being publicized will seek medical advice and will follow the doctor's orders, and we won't see people escaping from quarantines that we saw during SARS. And uh, that that will go a long way to keeping it from spreading. Well, of course, I mean, washing your hands and doing this. Of course, there's the face mask issue as well. That's right. Uh, and what we saw in SARS and potentially again now with MERS is a high demand for face masks. Uh, they sell out from some of the vendors. Uh, there's always concerns about the quality of, of the masks as well. Unfortunately, we get some unscrupulous vendors will, will appear selling inferior products, which do not help at all. And uh, there's also the debate, and it happens again, not just in Taiwan, but other countries as well. Is this a role of government? Should they just be handing masks out to the public for free? Of course, another issue has been the tourism industry, right. with many people are cancelling trips to South Korea. And I believe that China Airlines, Taiwan's national carrier, came out yesterday and said it could If it continues to spread in South Korea, it will have to cancel flights to the peninsula and it could hurt their bottom line. Right. And the minister. Talking about money, obviously, and illness is a bit inane, but China Airlines did come out and it did say their bottom line. And money's money. Yeah, could be hurt. And uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the CDC have both slightly upped their travel warnings for South Korea. I think it's Seoul. Seoul is now... Specifically for Seoul, yeah. Seoul, yeah. They, they, I think believe Seoul, as we're recording this, is a level two warning, while the rest of South Korea, I believe, is a level one. And basically that means be really careful about going into hospitals. In, if you're in Seoul, yeah, avoid right. hospitals. Oh, apps don't fall over, don't stub your toe, don't get an ingrown toenail. <laughs> right. Uh, so try not to have any medical complications while in Seoul. Uh, good advice anyway. All right, so we're going to have to move on to another story where South Korea is laying on the fear in Taiwan. But in this case, for a very different reason, this week China and South Korea formally signed a free trade agreement that would remove most tariffs between the two countries. Uh, Now, this is something that we have known was coming for quite a while. Nevertheless, many in the Ma administration have responded to the news with warnings that the deal is a threat to Taiwan's exports and by renewing calls to up efforts to strike international trade deals, Uh, like, for example, the stalled trade deals with China. 
So getting into this story, uh, we are wading in deep into business matters. uh, And to help us make a little bit more sense of all this, uh, I spoke earlier this week to Tim Kalpin, who is a correspondent at Bloomberg News in Taipei. Uh, I asked him, uh, you know, in light of all of these officials coming out and making these warnings about the, the future of Taiwan's economy. I asked him, what is his take? How big of an impact he thinks this will have on Taiwan's economy? If Korea gets to lower their uh, import tariffs into other countries, and, that, and Taiwan still has such import tariffs facing their products, then that is going to be a competitive disadvantage because it makes the Taiwan products just a little bit more expensive. It is a big deal, but there's also a lot of other headwinds that Taiwan faces and, and also tailwinds. A big issue right now for Taiwan is the fact that the the currency is is strengthening quite a lot, and that is actually bad for Taiwan because it, again, makes Taiwan products more expensive. But what really Taiwan also needs to focus on is being more innovative to make things uh, that other countries need to buy that are not necessarily price-sensitive. And, in fact, uh, officials this week uh, have been talking on the sidelines of Computex about the fact that Taiwan needs to to not worry so much about things like FTAs, but just try and be more competitive overall and be more innovative. So while it's certainly true that Taiwan not getting an FTA where South Korea is, is certainly a headwind and a challenge for Taiwan, it's not really the end of the world, and it's certainly not the only issue that Taiwan needs to be facing. Right. So, Ross, uh, he's pointing out that, you know, there's uh, plenty of domestic things that Taiwan could be focusing on. Uh, what's your take on this? Well, it's a very reasonable point. There, there's a number of issues that Taiwan could could do or attack unilaterally that would make it a more attractive place uh, for other countries to engage in either trade negotiations or make Taiwan a more attractive destination for inbound investment, which is also something that's not necessarily sensitive to tariff levels or the existence or lack of FTAs. And those include things like uh, educating the workforce and making sure that they have the skills to compete in the 21st century. Uh, reduction of bureaucracy and red tape, uh, more efficient uh, workforce, uh, more efficient uh, both in the services sector and the manufacturing sector and as well as the agricultural sector. These are all things Taiwan could do unilaterally. Uh, One thing we we don't see yet um, is either party talking about this, whether it's on a presidential candidate level or even legislators talking about these kinds of issues as opposed to just pointing singly to, to an FTA. But, but as Tim pointed out, there are broader economic development and trade issues that are at stake. And these are things that Taiwan can be talking about and attacking and formulating strategies uh, to, to improve where Taiwan is deficient. And these are all things Taiwan could do unilaterally. Would you would you also, though, be mm, somewhat gloom and doom on the prospects for Taiwan's trade going forward if it doesn't manage to get some more FTAs? I mean, is this is this really uh, going to hurt its competitiveness? Uh, it, it will in some ways, certainly. Uh, if products from other markets are more inexpensive, as Tim mentioned, that that's a significant factor. Uh, there's also the the optical damage. And what I mean is uh, the perception that Taiwan is not a competitive place either to do business in or to trade with. Uh, and having an FTA, it just creates platforms and opportunities for uh, not just business people, but government people as well, or analysts like us to to have a larger conversation about these kinds of issues. And, and uh, either you're in a club or you're, you're standing on the sidelines outside of the club. And, and the Taiwan should be in this club, uh, but it's not always a political issue. It's not always 
objections from China. Uh, Taiwan has successfully signed FTAs recently uh, with Singapore and New Zealand. So th- there, there is a desire by other countries t- to sign FTAs with Taiwan. But uh, if it's not a political issue, it's a business issue. And that, that means that the other countries are looking for Taiwan to make some concessions in order to achieve an FTA. But of course, it has sort of become a political hot potato, really, when you think about it. Considering the, obviously, the government knew this was going to be signed months and months and months ago. But when it was signed on Monday, the first thing the government did was come out, stamp its feet and said, oh, the FTA between China and South Korea means that we must speed up the, the signing of several agreements with China. I mean, that's kind of a theme. Anytime there's any movement with Korea, South Korea and, and any other country, they, they take that as an opportunity to renew those calls. Yeah, obviously there's the, there's the bill. The oversight bill, of course, has yet to be reviewed. That's an oversight bill to oversee... The passage of these deals with China. With China, thank you. Yeah, I was going to cut that out. It was just stuck. And then, <laughs> of course, there's the Trade in Services Agreement with China, which was, of course, signed two, year, two years ago now. Mm. basically two years ago now and of course that's remained stalled in the legislature because the political parties are bickering over that one and then of course there's Mars trading goods agreement with China the talks of which have begun but of course nothing has happened with that but like you said FTAs between China and South Korea get brought up and the government jumps up and down and goes we need to do our agreements with China to catch up but like Tim said it could be doing other things rather Mm. than simply focusing on deals with China well, China still remains Taiwan's largest export market, so it's certainly crucial. Uh, and again, I, I'd emphasize that uh, the lack of these kinds of agreements, it will make China a place where Korean products uh, ha- have greater access. That could be at the expense of Taiwan products in the future and it makes uh, Korea a more attractive place for inbound investment from China. Uh, and tourism and other things. So, uh, again, it's an optical issue and a public relations issue as well that that says we're open for business, we're open for investment, Uh, we're not stalling these things for domestic political reasons, which seems to be the case right now in Taiwan. Uh, So Korea is racing ahead. On, on these issues. Uh, that, that In the long term, it's not good for Taiwan. It, uh, it would be for Taiwan's benefit, whether it's the agreements with China after they get appropriate review uh, in the legislature or FTAs with other uh, markets as well. Well, I mean, what about the, the TPP? Because, of course, earlier this week, the American chamber here in Taiwan released its annual white paper in which it actually laid out its proposals for why Taiwan should join the TPP. So, I mean, Ross, do you see Taiwan actually joining the TPP eventually, possibly offsetting or in some way helping to offset the China FTA with Korea? Uh, That's on on the assumption that Taiwan could eventually join. And and again, there are unilateral steps that Taiwan's trading partners would like Taiwan to take in order to invite Taiwan into the TPP. Uh, There's a debate about what would be the business impact if Taiwan joins the TPP for the other uh, markets. Uh, But in the long run, it would be good for Taiwan. It would be good for the other countries that are members. But uh, I'd say this is not a political issue. What I mean is the other members of the TPP are not keeping Taiwan out because they fear China's reaction. They're keeping Taiwan out because they're asking Taiwan to make certain concessions and changes to Taiwan's laws and regulations that Taiwan is not prepared to take yet. And, And that's a significant factor keeping Taiwan out. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave the trade deals behind for now uh, because it's actually time for a commercial break. Uh, But we're going to be coming back in just a couple minutes. So make sure to stick around after the break.
All right, welcome back to Taiwan this week. ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. Jumping back into things and starting the second half with the biggest political story of the week, DPP Chairwoman Tsai Ing-wen's trip to the U.S., where she is holding marathon meetings to brief lawmakers, officials, and think tank hangers-on of all stripes on what her policies would be should she win next year's presidential election. Now, of course, this is Tsai's second trip to the U.S. as part of a presidential bid. Her first trip was made in the run-up to the 2012 presidential election, and that trip had a few hiccups, shall we say, namely a Financial Times article including leaks from a high-ranking U.S. official seen by many as a deliberate attempt by the Obama administration to attack Tsai's credentials on cross-strait stability. So back then, uh, the trip clearly didn't go so well. Uh, may have been even pivotal moment in her doomed campaign. Uh, now here we are in 2015 with those memories still fresh, and the big question is how much has changed since then? Well, to hear Chairwoman Tsai tell it, things are off to a good start. She said at a think tank forum in D.C. that her campaign has done a better job of communicating with U.S. policymakers this time round, and she's sounding pretty upbeat. I think this time we stand a better chance to win. <laughs> right, so bit of an upbeat note there. Uh, what, what's your guys' take? Uh, has this been a better trip for her? Well, well, we'll have to wait and see whether in the coming days there's another unnamed U.S. official who criticizes her in the international media, which is something that was very unfortunate for her campaign in 2012. Um, the, they had put so much hype into her trip, uh, as they've done now, frankly, uh, and that was what came out of the trip was the criticism. So if the point was to impress U.S. officials on her cross-strait policies and then to have it criticized that way, big disappointment. Uh, I would expect this time U.S. officials to be a little more circumspect in their criticism. Uh, hopefully there won't be any leaks and any criticism of her will be kept behind closed doors. But on, on the issue of behind closed doors, so much of what the voters – and I guess you could say the pundits like us in Taiwan want to hear from Chairwoman Tsai. Uh, she has not said publicly, and she's still keeping it behind closed doors. And whether that's on policies towards China or policies on some of the other issues we were talking about, such as trade issues and business issues, uh, I think the public in Taiwan, the voters, do want uh, a little more uh, forthrightness from her on some of these issues. And, and you know, the uh, the odd thing is that she's saying she went to Washington and talked about these issues behind closed doors with U.S. officials, but she's not doing it with the voters in Taiwan. Right. And uh, so that was one thing that we were expecting to see coming out of this trip is the fleshing out of her China policy. Uh, and she did release a Wall Street Journal article. She also had a, a very important speech this Wednesday, uh, expected to see a little bit more fleshing out. But uh, I think so far, she most of what we've heard is she's going to continue the status quo. And that is a line that has at least not satisfied uh, her her opposition, the KMT, so far. So uh, what did you guys hear come out of those speeches? Anything new that tells us something about her uh, her policy? Well, she did, she did vow to stick to the ROC constitution in maintaining cross-strait ties, which, of course, was probably came out a bit of a shock to most people that she came out and said that openly. Especially uh, that she said it in Washington because mm. she doesn't usually use that kind of terminology when yeah, speaking yeah. here in Taiwan. Yeah, but she, of course she did avoid the 1992 consensus. Yeah. And there was a rather amusing anecdote at one of the press conferences where a student from China, I believe, 
asked Sai about the 1992 consensus, and Sai was rather politely turned around to the student and said, well, if you want to know that answer, read my speech. It's all in the speech. Well, in some ways, that could have been a lost opportunity, both for the voters of Taiwan to explain uh, her policy and whether or not she uh, will adhere to that 1992 consensus. And it was also an opportunity to say something to the people of China, especially given the rather critical remarks about her delivered by the ambassador of China in Washington during the period that she, Ms. Tsai was in Washington. So if she had a chance with a question from a PRC student, uh, Ms. Tsai could have let it off by saying, in a democracy – and then continued on with her answer, which I think would have impressed a lot of us. Uh, but instead, she simply referred the uh, young questioner to read her speech. Uh, right. And, and picking up on that note about the uh, ambassador from China, uh, Gavin, can you tell us uh, that, that that brewed a little bit of a political back and forth here in Taiwan as well? Can you tell us well, a bit about quite, that? It was quite amusing, I believe. What was the chap's name? Sui Tian Kai, the chap's name is. He's the Chinese ambassador to the United States. And he questioned Tsai's entire trip to the United States with a great line, why is she not talking to the other side of the strait, but rather is speak, seeking an interview with foreigners? Those foreigners being the people the, in the, the US. The people in the United States, yes. Well, of course, what was quite amusing about this was the fact that it was an inane comment to start with. And secondly, both the KMT, the Mainland Affairs Council, and the Foreign Ministry here in Taiwan all basically came out and defended Tsai. Yeah. Which is quite ironic, considering they wouldn't normally do that. Well, they also have to uh, prepare for the eventual trip to Washington by the KMT candidate once they uh, actually select one. Um, but uh, it would be unusual if the KMT's presidential candidate didn't also do a similar trip to Washington, D.C., yeah, but I'm sure the Chinese ambassador is not going to say anything about that one. Well, that that's when uh, media folks like you can ask the Chinese ambassador why he has a double standard. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that kind of raises uh, an, an interesting point. I mean, it, it seems like there's nothing uh, that China could do that would be worse than uh, kind of making both parties mad at the same time and, and, and giving them something to bring them together. Uh, and, well, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that when Beijing found out what Mr. Tsui did... They were probably a bit miffed mm. because, of course, gunboat diplomacy has failed abysmally over the mm-hmm. years. We've only got to go back to the 1996 elections here in Taiwan to see how abysmally that failed. Right. When the Chinese Navy held an exercise off the coast and everyone went, hmm, maybe we won't quite do what they want us to do. Right. And so if people get a whiff of that in this election cycle, it could really backfire. Well, uh, yeah, as Gavin noted, China's had its, uh, frankly, poor results and experiences with these kinds of bombastic comments about Taiwan's elections, or in some cases, uh, not not just comments, but actual um, action like military exercises. So every time we think China will do less of that, there seems to be a Chinese official who uh, unfortunately makes comments like this. Uh, it'll be something to watch over the next four or five months, how China reacts to the Taiwan presidential election. In many ways, it's still a bit of an unknown. All right. And, uh, well, the trip hasn't even wrapped up and we're already giving commentary on it. So, uh, of course, still a lot more to see as as that progresses and as the election as a whole progresses. Uh, but we're going to move on to our last story for the day. Last week's killing of an eight-year-old in a random attack by an intruder at an elementary school has brought national grief, shock at the brutal nature of the murder, and has also rekindled Taiwan's debate on whether or not to continue use of the death penalty. 
Uh, so, Gavin, people are clearly furious uh, at this news. This is the sort of crime that is really unimaginable. Uh, we heard a lot of support this week for continuing the death penalty, and, and it seems like those who hope for the death penalty to be abolished clearly on the defensive. Uh, what have you been hearing? Well, of course, we've heard a lot of, well, public consensus has yet to be reached on the issue from a lot of political heavyweights, President Myung Jo included, tying when, in fact, when she was in Washington and quizzed over it, she had the same answer. Of course, Eric Chu, the KMT chairman, had the same answer. So a lot of the heavyweights are like just sticking to the public consensus issue. But there was one KMT lawmaker, Wu Yusheng who held a press conference in midweek, and he actually questioned the island's judiciary, saying, why aren't we speeding up the execution of prisoners on death row? Well, the reality is it's, it's um, a law. It's a sentence that can be imposed, and there are people uh, on, on death row. And uh, it, their cases have gone through the court system, and they've been adjudged to, to be receiving the death penalty, then uh, it's a reasonable point to ask why it's not being carried out. And that was part of the debate with President Ma's series of justice ministers, where some of them did not want to sign the execution orders, and they were replaced by somebody who was willing to do so. And they take the perspective that we're implementing uh, what, what what is the law and what the convicts have been sentenced to. Uh, this is an interesting issue to have a democracy where there is such overwhelming public support for using the death penalty because in, in other places like uh, Europe where it's largely been eliminated and in the United States where it's a contentious issue, but uh, even in those states where, the, where it still is used, it, it's not supported at the levels that it is here in Taiwan. Uh, but beyond just the death penalty, another important aspect of the conversation coming out of uh, the tragic event last Friday is how should schools and, and education authorities react to this? And uh, we see some of the usual kind of public relations actions like, well, let's uh, build higher walls around schools or let's uh, spend more money on more cameras and more TV monitors in the security room. And, and we know that the, these are really just exercises in PR. But one thing that uh, is is a positive in that conversation is is that many government officials and I think parents as well did say that you know, schools are supposed to be an open environment not just for the students and the parents um, but also for the community and one thing Taiwan is very good at is using schools so elementary schools and high schools for community activities uh, after school hours the the running track is open the basketball courts are open classrooms are used for adult education for example. So I think it's a positive that the public has, has not said we need to fear and, and overreact and close off our, our school grounds. It's a good point, then, actually. I mean, in Britain, I haven't lived there for a long time, but I remember when I was living there, the school would be closed at the weekend. And if anybody that wasn't a school student was found on the, the running track or the rugby field, they'd be told to get out. They wouldn't be allowed to use it. The public in Britain, you know, you don't use schools in Britain as they do here as a community centre for the community. And that's clearly one of the, the biggest draws of living in Taiwan is that you do feel that uh, your kids can kind of play in public places uh, unattended and uh, will be safe. I mean, I hear that from a lot of expats living in Taiwan, that that's, you know, safe places for their children is a lot of why they're here. So uh, the fact that that sense is perhaps still preserved despite uh, horrific media reports like this one uh, is somewhat encouraging.
All right, well, we are going to have to leave it on that note, though. That's it for the show today. You can leave us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you're listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Gavin, thank you. Yeah, goodbye. And Ross Feingold. Ross, thank you as well. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.